Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, crime, policing, and the law. So, Richard, we have returned repeatedly in the time that you and I have been doing this podcast to issues involving criminal justice, especially the racial component that has been so pronounced over the past few years in places like Ferguson and Baltimore. And just a few days ago, we heard Jim Comey, the director of the FBI, saying that he thinks that the increases in violent crime that we're beginning to see in some parts of the country may be at least partially attributable to police officers consciously choosing to be less proactive because they fear that they'll get thrown under the bus if they end up as part of a controversy that gins up racial tensions. Now, probably worth noting that the White House via the press secretary uh, brushed that off, said they don't see any evidence of that. How about you, Richard? What do you make of what people are calling the Ferguson effect? Well, I mean, in an effort to try to find theoretical positions for it, it's easy to see what the source of the claim is. Uh, what you see is if, in fact, you engage in an arrest, there's a very small chance that something terribly adverse will happen. You will then be put through the meat grinder, and when you come out sausage at the other end, your career will be shattered and ruined. That's exactly what happened to Darren Wilson. People forget that he was, by and large, actually completely exonerated by the Justice Department um, work, and still the Ferguson effect is based upon the assumption that Whenever an armed, unarmed person is killed, particularly if it's a black man, um, that there's something wrong by the part of the police. This could easily influence some police in some places. Well, that's the theoretical side. As the price of an arrest goes up, the willingness to commit them or to more perform them goes down. But there's another side. Do you actually have any evidence of this in terms of the way things work in the field? It could be a very small effect. It could be masked by other effects. It could be a situation that changes in police policies in different locations have effect on something effectively to blunt it. And so when you look around in places like Cleveland, for example, there seems to be an increase. If you look at New York, even with Bill de Blasio as a mayor who's been highly critical of the, peace, of the police from time to time, it seems, thank heavens, that crime rates are about the same. So I think what one can say about this is it's just extremely difficult at this point to make any definitive situation. You're going to have at the very least to wait a longer period of time. And then since crime rates are a function of so many other variables, you're going to have an enormous task of trying to uh, basically disentangle this one from thousands of other changes, some of which are actually brought on by Ferguson himself. So I would say at this point, Gene Comey, who's a friend of mine, a graduate of the University of Chicago, I'm sure he has some reason to believe this. But I would say at this point, it's a hypothesis rather than a fact. At the same time that this is happening, you have people on both the left and the right bemoaning what is increasingly being referred to as mass incarceration, the idea that we lock up too many people. Let me read to you, Richard, something that Hillary Clinton said earlier this year. Quote, it's a stark fact that the United States has less than 5 percent of the world's population, yet we have almost 25 percent of the world's total prison population. The numbers today are much higher than they were 30 or 40 years ago despite the fact that crime is at historic lows, close, close quote. And Richard, you'll, you'll hear not dissimilar things from some people on the right like Rand Paul. Is, is, this, is this your sense that we are at a crisis level when it comes to the number of Americans who are in prison? No, I think what happens is you have to ask about the use of the word despite in the sentence that she gave. 
Uh, you right. could easily do it in the other way and say, look, the crime rates that we have in the United States are down by roughly 50 percent in the last 20 or 22 years because of the fact that we have higher rates of incarceration. Incarceration provides two general benefits. One, it incapacitates known criminals and therefore prevents them from committing mayhem. And two, it gives a credible deterrent that stops other people from doing this. And so unless you know whether the despite or the because is the appropriate situation, you don't know whether you're talking about a solution or whether you're talking about a problem. So then what you have to do is to go back and ask the following question. If you look at the number of convictions that you have, what's the mix of crimes and what's the error rate with respect to the classes? I think there's a lot to be said that low-level punishment for drug use, marijuana, and so forth is probably a mistake, and that one ought to cut back on that, and that will empty some of the prisoners. But if, in fact, what you do is you have a relatively high percentage of people who have committed some kind of violent crime, everything from strong-on robbery to murder to burglary and so forth, I don't think you want to let those people out. So what is it that's different about the United States? Well, one thing that everybody points out to is the exceedingly high level of guns in this country. There are, roughly speaking, about one gun in the United States for every person, including every man, woman, and infant and child in the country. And you, know, you have a high level of guns, and that, in terms, can easily lead to a high level of gun violence. But you don't want to go overboard on that, because if you then break the statistics down further, what you discover is only two-thirds of the crimes are roughly committed by guns, and the rest are done by knives, for example, and by strong-on robberies and by blunt instruments and so forth, occasionally by poison. So you're not quite sure about the way in which this particular correlation starts to work. So you put all of these things together. The question you then have to ask yourself is what adjustments could you make from the current situation which might improve the way in which situations go? And you could see it in all sorts of ways. You could actually try to arrest more people if you're confident that you're getting criminals, or you could go the other way and try to do community engagement work in order to reduce what's going on. There's this huge debate, I think there should be a debate at least, as to whether or not we want off-duty servicemen and whether we would like to have military personnel who are trained in firearms, carry them about them within the city when they're in schools and so forth, and that might be a very effective deterrent on this stuff. So I think Mrs. Clinton just is much too confident about the connection that you're stating here. This is a really difficult problem to face. Uh, we know we've had a decline. There's a lot of disagreements as to what the decline in crime is attributable to. But to simply say that if we reduce the number of incarcerated people, particularly those with violent defenses, that would somehow or other create a better situation, who knows? The United States is a very different population in terms of the penetration of military weapons, and I don't see any realistic way uh, to assume that you can basically get people to turn their weapons in in any large numbers. Gun control is basically a losing issue throughout the United States, even though there's some strongly um, determined people to shut it down. And, and so, look, it's, again, like the other thing, it's unproven. This is an area in extreme uncertainty and very great difficulty. Richard, there was a really arresting development over the summer when some Black Lives Matter activists were openly critical of Martin O'Malley, one of the Democratic candidates for president, for responding to that Black Lives Matter mantra with the phrase, all lives matter. O'Malley actually ended up apologizing for that. As a classical liberal, I suspect that you have an aversion to slicing and dicing people demographically like that. As a social matter, does it does it concern you? Do you worry that we run the risk of getting to a place where we're so uh, balkanized or so driven by identity politics that we really can't even have the conversation anymore because we don't share sort of foundational precepts? Well, I mean it seems very ironic 
that the racial divisions in the United States now are much deeper and much more intense than they were seven years ago when George Bush was president. And I think in part the difficulty lies with the president. I think it's perfectly say that black lives matter and then after the semicolon to say so do all other people. The reason we stress this is we think that these lives are in greater jeopardy because of the police system. And then what you try to do is to figure out what you could do to rectify those imbalances. But what I have seen in effect is that there's no moral leadership from the center in talking about these things. So to go back to the Ferguson situation, uh, the Justice Department does a very thorough report which essentially says, although they don't use the words, that Darren Wilson was fully justified in doing the thing the way in which he did it. You would have expected that Eric Holder and Obama was up there saying, look, we know that black lives matter, but essentially we can't use general presumptions like this to determine individual cases. And it turns out that we all owe Darren Wilson an apology for the way in which we castigated him uh, for doing things which in fact were not illegal when done. You didn't see that. What you saw instead was another report which never referred to the first report, in which you castigated Ferguson for having pre- practices of forfeiture and fines and uh, basically selective you know, punishment for traffic offenses in order to raise revenues. This is common in virtually every city in the United States. But when you did that, now what you said is that you know, Ferguson is a racist town. It turns out everything you should have said about uh, Darren Wilson gets lost. And so to this particular day, I think that most of the Black Lives Matter critics have no idea of what the actual finding was in that particular case. This seems to me to be a terrible thing, and it's not sufficient for Republicans to point this out. The President of the United States and the Attorney General of the United States have to issue a public authority, you know, a public apology to Darren Wilson. They have to restore his pension, try to give him back his life in order to make that particular point clear. And if you do that, then you can basically take a much more sensible position which is to say we know that there's a serious problem here on racial relations, just the perception issue is enough, but what we cannot do is crystallize it against this man, and we certainly don't want Black Lives Matter as a jurisprudence to say it's okay for blacks to burn down black churches in Ferguson, uh, Missouri. And in fact, there was a lot of black-on-black crime that took place in that area. And you need somebody to get out there and to say this is not consistent with principles of law and order, The people who are going to be killed are of all races, and we just will not tolerate that kind of behavior or the rhetoric that leads to it. So you don't get a president who's giving any moral leadership on this issue. And it's tragic. A man who's supposed to be able to sort of ease the bonds between the races because he's worked in both communities for so long turns out not to be willing to do it. Uh, Holder didn't do it. And as best I can tell, the new attorney general, Ms. Lynch, hasn't said a word about this particular issue. So I think, in effect, we need some real candid talk from the center. It has to be balanced. It cannot poo-poo the problem, but it cannot tolerate the sort of physical and violent responses that has been done under that name. And it cannot be allowed to become a campaign which says black lives matter and white lives don't. That would be just horrible to have this happen. It's the negative pregnant that drives everybody to uncertainty. And one has to be able to complete the sentence so that you know, essentially, that all lives should be regarded as lives of equal dignity or protected by the law. To take another angle on that, one of your recurring things every time that we touch on this topic is the lack of historical perspective in the conversation, the lack of any sense of how much progress we've made in both legal and cultural terms in the last 50 years or so. I I wonder, Richard, we're always being exhorted. I think Attorney General Holder 
uh, did this. We're always being exhorted to have a, a national conversation on race. H- have we maybe talked it to death? Might we be re- perhaps be making the situation worse by allowing it to play such a dominant role in the national conversation? Well, I mean, it depends on what is being said, but there's very little talk of reconciliation on either side. I mean, so if you want to just switch the focus and talk about voting rights. You know, I was alive in 1965 and I was in college and I knew exactly what the gravity of the situation was. And it was a national scandal. And everybody throughout the country knew this. And the Voting Rights Act and a lot of other decent work by large numbers of people managed to turn that situation around. And so when you start having Shelby County, which treats the problem as though it's only gone underground, it's not been solved, insists that we have more powerful remedies, that they last for a longer time, what that's doing implicitly is saying, that the progress that we made never really happened and that what we're really worried about now are insidious forms of hidden discrimination, the evidence for which is not found. And so when you actually see the decision coming out by Justice Roberts, what you do is you hear denunciation after denunciation of the man and the argument is never made, hey, may he be right on the facts on the ground about how things were. And I think it's important for black leaders and for white leaders to first talk about the progress and then talk about the work that remains to be done. And I think, in effect, many of the things that people want to do are exactly in the wrong direction. The voting stuff will solve absolutely nothing. Uh, The serious issues that we have are a combination of criminal enforcement, in which you have to protect black citizens from being attacked by other black citizens. And then there's the huge economic program, where the one thing we're quite confident about is increased minimum wages, generally speaking, will increase disproportionately unemployment rates with respect to black teenagers, as against white teenagers who, on average, have higher skill set. It also seems to me you have to do everything in your power as the president to encourage charter schools, which essentially have had by far the greatest success in New York City and in New Jersey alike in improving the lot of black citizens. And yet what you do is you see essentially silence in the center, coupled with very strong pro-union rhetoric, which says that you can't take these kids who are now treated as pawns in a large game out of the public schools and put them into the private schools because the success of their private school education doesn't matter. What happens is they bring down the average in the public schools. But of course, we now know from the story today in the New York Times that the New Jersey school that was just taken over bodily, same students, same everything, by a charter school turned from a failing to a successful school in the same year. And all of the doubts about, well, who gets into the program and how it's measured are essentially frivolous. So there's a huge number of things that you can do that are not divisive. And what's happened is we have not been able to do any of them. And again, I think the leadership has to come from the top. I think it has to come from the president, from the attorney general, but it also has to come from mayors like the mayor in New York and the mayor in Newark, and both of them are opposed to charter schools. I regard this as simply just mystifying that you can have so much hostility to the one avenue for release in fact, that are available for minority students. And what you do is you see progressives trying to shut it down. I regard it as inexcusable and incomprehensible. Just a note of clarification there for our listeners. Shelby County, uh, which you referred to a moment ago, is the Supreme Court case dealing with those voting rights questions. Uh, let, me have you clo- let me have you close on, a, I guess, a question of political philosophy. Classical liberals like yourself, always operate with a a skeptical eye towards government power. Not that it shouldn't exist, but that you've got to be very careful about how it's applied. And you will oftentimes hear libertarians talk about the state as the the organ of society that has the the monopoly on the permissible use of violence. That's an issue that really seems most acute 
when we're talking about police. Those are the government agents who are empowered to use force that your average citizen is most likely to interact with. And Richard, that's obviously – that's a delicate balance because you want to give them enough power to keep the peace yep. but not so much as to induce abuse. How should a libertarian think about finding that balance? Well, it's extremely difficult. The definition that you gave about the monopoly of violence or more preferably force because violence is by definition unlawful, right. I think, is in fact from Max Weber and he was a kind of a mainstream sociologist, not particularly libertarian, more interested in bureaucracy than he was essentially in political philosophy. But I think what you have to do is to recognize that whenever you're in a world in which trade-offs are going to be paramount, uh, there is no way that you're going to come up with some grand pronouncement which will solve your problem. So what you have to do is to decompose things and then figure out what moves you can make at the margin to do things better. So if it turns out that you're arresting too many people under the stop and frisk programs, you try to cut back a little bit. If the crime rate starts to go up again, you may want to increase these kinds of things. What I have found when I have tried to do this thing as an interim dean and as a manager, if you make programs incremental, what you do is you diffuse political opposition. So at the University of Chicago, there was always the question of how it is that you run the affirmative action program as it is at every other law school. And my position, which echoed that of the deans before me and afterwards, we're going to have this program. The question is, how far are we going to go into the pool? And so if one year you don't get enough students, the next year take a, new, a few more. Uh, one year it turns out the bottom tier doesn't do very well, you cut back a little. So long as you tell people that there's going to be data-driven decisions at the margin, what you can do is to get them to understand the legitimacy. If you go into one of these programs and say, I'm a colorblind libertarian and I think there should be no affirmative action program, it's a declaration of war. If you come in from the other side and you come in with, say, I have a quota, which is 25% minority student, it may not be quite as dramatic, but it's also pretty hard. If you're saying, look, we have a problem, we're trying to fix it, let's work in good faith to see which way we move the dial next year, it changes the rhetoric. And that's what you have to do at the political level. And so when you start having people taking really hardline positions on either side, what you do is you make incremental just adjustments more difficult, and that is indeed the tragedy of our time. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org. <laughs>